Break out your beach towel and secure yourself that place in the sun. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, the podcast that brings the fest to your October and the umpa to your band. Every week we're going to hold a gentle but firm relationship counselling session to try and smooth over the centuries of pride and prejudice that have come between Britain and Germany. The Mr. and Mrs. Bennett of Western Europe. Uh, hang on, which country is supposed to be the Mrs. Bennett in that ridiculous metaphor of yours? In the interest of diplomacy, I think we'd probably better leave that for the listeners to thrash out. But all right then, who's the Mr. Darcy here? Well, he's blunt, he's touchy, he's deaf to other people's feelings, but he's also enviably wealthy and fundamentally a good egg. So clearly Mr. Darcy is German. Mm, yeah, all right, that's, that's fair enough. I suppose the metaphor does need a bit of work, but it is at least pertinent, because today we are going to be discussing the Anglo-German marriage plots of 19th century royalty. That Mr. Collins figure over there is Katja Hoyer, a German historian based in Sussex. And that preposterous Mr. Bingley type on the other end uh, of this podcast is Oliver Moody, a British journalist living in Berlin. Oh, cheers, Katja. That's every bit as tough but excruciatingly accurate as I've come to expect from you over these past few weeks. Right then, before we wander completely off the reservation, let's get stuck into the Saxicopa Gothas. They weren't always exact matches made in heaven, were they? <laughs> no, not exactly. I think uh, we should probably start this with the succession crisis of 1817, when the um, only surviving legitimate grandchild of King George III um, dies after childbirth. And um, this leads to what can only really be described as a marriage race, where Parliament stumps up funds for um, George's younger sons to try and get hitched and produced an heir. And um, it also produced one of the single worst pieces of poetry in the English language by the satirist Peter Pindar, who wrote, A gogger all, both young and old and young, warmed with desire to be prolific, and prompt with resolution strong to fight in Hyman's war terrific. <laughs> Um, so the, uh, the leader in this race is Edward, Duke of Kent and Strathern, a military man who had been uh, carrying on with a French colonel's wife for 28 years, but for obvious reasons he couldn't marry her. So he proposes instead to uh, the German Princess Victoria of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld. Um, and a couple of years later, um, the marriage finally produces a daughter, Princess Victoria, in 1819. But there are um, question marks over her legitimacy. Um, some suggest that the real father might be this Irish soldier and adventurer figure called John Conroy, who was managing Princess Victoria's finances. Um, anyway, nine months later, um, Kent, Victoria's father, dies of pneumonia, and um, her poor old mother, who can't even really speak English by this point, just goes back off to Coburg in Germany to live off her first husband's pension. Um, and then eventually sneaks back to Kensington Palace to try and get her daughter onto the throne. <laughs> well, that was interesting, uh, but not terribly romantic, was it? Not exactly. But in that case, should we move on to the best known and perhaps the most romantic Anglo-German union of them all? Uh, Jürgen Klopp and the Kopp? <laughs> not quite as romantic as that, or at least not as first. Um, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert didn't exactly fall in love at first sight, did they? I suppose... At the risk of straining the metaphor to its outer limits, you could almost see Albert as a Mr. Darcy figure. <laughs> yeah, you were certainly uh, known to be sort of quite blunt, a little bit stiff. Um, but by all accounts, Victoria was still reasonably impressed, even if, if love didn't sort of blossom at, at first sight. The two certainly had a lot in common, so they were both exactly the same age near enough. Uh, both born within sort of just months of each other in 1819. Um, they were even delivered by the same midwife, uh, Charlotte Heidenreich von Siebold. 
Um, shared a set of grandparents as well, which made them uh, first cousins, uh, which was sort of slightly frowned upon at the time as well, but common enough to be uh, acceptable. Um, and when Albert and his elder brother, Ernest, first came to Kensington um, in the spring of 1836, uh, Victoria seemed reasonably impressed, if not quite romantically attracted to him as such yet. He was a bit chubby at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, by all accounts. But she was still she doesn't describe any of that in her own notes. But then, you know, they were sort of mostly written in, in hindsight. Um, and I imagine, you know, coloured with a good bit of the infatuation that she felt later for him as well. So she actually described him at the time... Um, in the following way in her diary, she said, uh, Albert, who's just as tall as Ernest, but stouter, there you go, <laughs> the chubbiness, is extremely handsome. His hair is about the same colour as mine, his eyes are large and blue, and he was a beautiful. he has a beautiful nose and a very sweet mouth with fine teeth. But the charm of his countenance uh, is his expression, which is most delightful. So that's quite sweet, isn't it? I feel like we should have some soaring violins in the background. <laughs> Although on Albert's side. So um, there was this evening for Queen Victoria's 17th birthday party where she danced with her five German, su- sorry, three German suitors and two Dutch suitors. And um, Albert, poor thing, got really tired and just went to bed early. Well, Victoria stayed up until half three. And um, Albert was, was really not impressed. He, he wrote back to one of his um, German acquaintances that Victoria delights in court ceremonies, etiquette and trivial formalities. <laughs> Which is probably quite accurate, to be fair. Um, but he seems to have actually genuinely been um, extremely good looking. So even Florence Nightingale, for example, agreed in, in her own notes that he was a remarkably agreeable looking youth um, and seems to have certainly attracted the uh, attention of a lot of the females. So perhaps uh, uh, that made up for, for his lack of, um, I don't know, being a party animal, I suppose. <laughs> Um, the, the, the deal was then sealed um, when he came to Britain for the second time in, in 1839. Um, and interestingly, because Queen Victoria, or Victoria was queen by then, um, and etiquette at the time had it that you weren't allowed to propose to the queen. And so she had to propose to him, uh, which he then gladly accepted. And they uh, got married in, in 1840. And of course, lived. although he um, he did write to his grandmother after she proposed to him that he felt he was sacrificing himself for the benefit of my new country. <laughs> so I do wonder if he was quite as head over heels in love as, as history has yeah, you get, quite made out. You get this throughout, I think, their relationship that she seems to be far more uh, infatuated with him than uh, vice versa, which also seems to come out. Um, in their notes a little bit but it it is interesting that he becomes the sort of single most uh, influential person really in Victoria's life certainly after the the death of Lord Melbourne the Prime Minister who had previously been a bit of a sort of father figure to uh, Victoria and let's not forget that she was so young as well at the time still um, sort of being a, a teenage queen not really quite knowing what to do uh, she'd been sort of bullied and pushed around by Parliament and, and all of the influential figures at court. And, and now Albert comes into the picture and sort of provides a bit of a stabilising influence. There's a lovely story about um, Victoria coming downstairs after her wedding night and meeting Melbourne, the Prime Minister, and just telling him she'd had a most gratifying and bewildering night. <laughs> Yeah, the the notes on the wedding night, they, they you just kind of sit there and wonder, you know, did she not expect people to read that later? Is is sort of very, she's very very uh, open in her own diary as well. She gushed uh, in there, I never never spent such an amazing evening. My dear dearest Albert sat on a footstool by my side, and his excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness. 
I never could have hoped to feel uh, to have felt this way before. He clasped me in his arms and we kissed each other again and again. Oh, it was the happiest day of my life. So in many ways, she's she's sort of quite, um, you know, open about her infatuation, both in her own notes and also just in public. It's, it's amazing how public their relationship was in many ways. Mm, I've often felt quite dirty while reading their exchanges of letters, particularly on Victoria's end. As you say, there is there they are spectacularly frank and, and gushing. Yeah, um, very much. And so. also some of the details. I mean there's there's this one line about so they didn't they didn't sleep naked. Um in bed Albert would wear um what were described as long white drawers, which um enclosed not only his feet sorry, not only his legs but his feet. And one of um Albert's biographers sums this up as a sort of nineteenth century baby grow. <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, some. I mean, throughout her uh, their relationship, really, when you when you read, as you say, when you read her diary entries, um, you, you do sort of feel that you're prying on something that you ought not know, even you know, given the time that's passed now. But another passage that I found, um, she describes uh, the following scene: My dear Albert came in from the rain today. He looked so handsome in his white cashmere bridges with nothing on underneath. <laughs> Oh, gross. (laughs) You just get the sense that uh, her own... I mean, she is well known, and most historians have sort of commented on this at one point and another. She's well known for her sort of, you know, voracious sexual appetites as well throughout her entire life. And this comes very much um, across in in her diary entries as well. I found another one that goes, uh, We both went to bed to uh, to, to lie by his side and in his arms, and on his dear bosom, and we called by we called each other by the names of tenderness. I have never heard uh, these names used to me before. Oh, what bliss beyond belief! Oh, and then you know she actually writes like this in her diary as well. Do you detect a certain slightly strange power dynamic between them in the letters as well? I mean, because she was obviously the queen, and Albert was just a sort of jumped-up member of a very minor. German aristocratic family, but he clearly had an extremely strong will and very clear ideas about what he wanted to do. And there's this um, ballad, popular ballad from the time um, when they got married that sort of impersonates Albert. And it says, um, she's lovely, she's rich, but they tell me when I marry her that she will wear the bridge, <laughs> or the trousers. <laughs> Hopefully with something underneath. Um, yeah, so, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. He had very, very strong uh, interests in things and, and tried to really impose his will onto both her and the country to some extent as well. He was very, very passionate about sort of the great social questions of the time, but poverty, child labour, those kinds of things. He really tried to uh, do something about it. He also masterminded the Great Exhibition of 1851, uh, bought uh, Balmoral Castle for Victoria, helped design Osborne. Um, so he really did leave a mark in, in all sorts of ways, the arts, uh, architecture, culture, social and political questions on her. But it seems in private he was a little bit frightened of Victoria as well. Um, so the, they, they seem to have had these very, very vocal and, and almost violent arguments with each other over almost nothing. Um, at which point Victoria usually stormed off um, and ran through the palace and, and huffed and puffed and, and Albert seems to have hidden in his room and written her notes about the argument, analysing afterwards um, sort of what happened. So I've, I found one incident, for example, where um, he he complained in his notes that they'd had an argument over a trifle matter, uh, which seems to have consisted of the fact that they were reading a book together um, and Victoria was turning the pages too quickly and at the wrong times. 
um, and he got annoyed with that. And in his in his note, he writes, "I complained of your turning several times from the inattention the wrong leaf," um, and then basically slipped this note underneath her door <laughs> in the hope that she'd read it and, and sort of take his constructive criticism on board. There's something quite uncomfortable about some of these exchanges in in my book. Um, so v- Victoria very clearly sort of abases herself before him a lot of times. She calls herself your little wife, your slave girl, and she refers to him as my master. While he's um, there, sometimes sitting at the breakfast table, reading her the entire German constitution. In one of his letters, he describes himself as the machine. So I wonder, do do you get the sense that he returned her affection to anything like the same degree as she gave it? I certainly don't think he he did so with the same emotionality. It doesn't seem to matter how much they argue and how dominant he becomes. She still calls him my angel and then, of course, famously grieves for the rest of um, her life after he died um, untimely and of of typhoid. Um, So I think in many ways the emotionality of it seems to be very uh, one-sided. But on the flip side, you do get repeated signs of of affection from him as well, but always with this, I think, power thing playing into it. I think the problem is just, as you say, she is queen. He finds himself as a consort very much um, at odds with Parliament and and with the British public as well, who never really quite warmed to him. And I think he's quite conscious of that and in some ways projects this onto uh, Victoria as well. So, for example, when Parliament doesn't grant him an, an appropriate um, a, a sort of amount of money to to live off and do things with, he constantly berates her for that um, and and sort of blames her and then tries to um, you know push push her to to push Parliament in effect. Um, so, if their relationship was a little bit more complex than people thought, did he at least get on with the other Brits with Britain on the whole? Do you think? Well, yes and no. Um, I think. Certainly, the red carpet was not exactly rolled out for him when he got here. The British establishment had the sense that Albert was a bit of a non-entity, the second son of a minor duchy in the the Rhineland League. There was quite a lot of anti-German sentiment in the British public at the time. And um, Albert was a Lutheran, which was just about okay because they're Protestants, but he had Catholics in his family. I don't think Albert felt that warmly about the Brits either. His English really wasn't very good in the early years. And in fact, um, a lot of these letters that we're quoting from are translations because um, they would write to each other in German, which in Victoria's case was not very good. And Albert also, he didn't really like English food and he felt really ill at ease um, in the company of British aristocrats. And I do think there was an awkwardness um, about his relationship with Britain that only really resolved itself in the years after he died and he got sort of beatified in, in public opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's, it's also, I can almost imagine, you know, he turns up everywhere, he knows everything better, he wants to get involved in everything and you can just see him turn up, you know, and, and suggest how things could be made better in a really thick German accent and the British public perhaps not really quite uh, warming to that to that idea of him just coming in and, you know, t- sort of trying to boss his little very popular queen about. On the flip side, it's possible I'm going out on a bit of a limb here. Um, so Victoria and Albert get married in 1841, which is 11 years after France has toppled its king. It's only a few years since um, George III has been pretty unpopular and there's been all this sort of suspicion that the British monarchy is a bit too German for its own good. And then uh, seven years after they get married, you have the revolutions that sweep across Europe in 1848. And yet the British monarchy gets ultimately stronger than it's been for a very long time. And I wonder, do you th- how much of a role do you think Albert played there in, in helping to 
stabilise or even save the British monarchy? I think quite a large one, to be honest. It's later associated with English liberalism, what he effectively introduced, uh, or certainly helped shape in, in Britain. But it's certainly his ideas of social reform that play a huge role. Uh, so the the amount of anger, as you say, in the 1848 revolutions or in general in the 1840s is largely based on just the misery that mass industrialization has caused in the in the cities. So the, the squalor, the cramped living conditions, you still have obviously things like child labor, people work ridiculous hours every day for almost no return. And the fact that he introduces those changes, both on social level and also at you know political level, to make the monarchy and the, the ancien regime, as it were, more palatable to the public, I think play a huge role. And this is, this is one of the reasons, I think, why it doesn't escalate in Britain in the way that it does uh, in France or, or in, the, in the German lands, German-speaking lands at this point. So I do think he's played a huge role there in modernising the the country um, and making it more appealing to the to the working classes. And then um, Albert dies in 1861 when they've been married for 20 years. Um, the trigger cause is usually given as typhoid fever, but it seems he had sort of underlying health problems, stomach cramps and all that sort of thing. And you get this scene. I don't know if these are quite Albert's last words, but um, Victoria comes in and leans over his sickbed and whispers, Es ist ein kleines Frauchen. It's a little woman. And he replies, give me your own course. Give us a kiss. Um, I, li- I like to think that's how he went out. And then after he dies, um, clearly Victoria is profoundly traumatised. She kept his rooms in exactly the same condition for um, the rest of her life. And she had the linen and the towels changed every day. Um, obviously, she wore black until she died. Um, and there's a bit of a surge in Republican sentiment in Britain because Victoria cancels so many of her public engagements. But over time, I think with the um, expansion of the British Empire and the sort of real increase in patriotism that came with that, but also with this massive um, programme of, of monuments, um, including Albertopolis in, in South Kensington, where you've got, you know, what are now the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Science Museum, the Natural History Museum, etc. Um, all kind of uh, sort of... B- memorials to to Albert and in fact um, Charles Darwin for whom Albert had tried to procure a knighthood um, said that he was so sick of the memorials that he wanted to go and find an inaccessible cave so he could get away from them. (laughs) Yeah I thought kind of a similar thing the other day I was sat in the in the Royal Albert Hall um, and thought back about the way that you know it was basically founded and built in his honour and then then opened in 1871 the same year that Germany was founded as a country Um, but it's those kinds of things isn't it they they make uh, for kind of quite distinct landmarks in London and elsewhere and, and, and brought Albert, I think, in a, as you say, slightly beatified way, perhaps, to the British public. And because he wasn't there anymore to be annoying and, and to know everything better, I think people's opinion over the decades, uh, you know, changed of him, certainly. But their biggest legacy is surely, you know, their, their children, isn't it, as a, as a couple? Well, yes. Also, they invented the White Wedding, effectively. Um, it was so their wedding's fascinating. It's the f- last time that a British monarch has got married while on the throne, and there are all these kind of traditions that we now take for granted in in modern wedding ceremonies and and and, and the sort of priors, you know, the the engagement ring, the white dress, and so on that they they basically came up with on the spot, um, which has left 
really quite a big cultural legacy, I think. Yeah, uh, maybe rivaling uh, the the Christmas traditions brought in as well, I suppose, the Christmas tree and the Christmas markets and, and those kinds of things as well. They certainly left a long-lasting impact on on culture in Britain as well as just the landscape and, and the way that... Um, the country looks now to a large extent. Well, I think we could all do with a cold shower after that steamy 19th century romance. Um, We'll be back after the break with the most ambitious Anglo-German power couple yet. Bis gleich! Welcome back to Tommy's and Jerry's, the Kaiser of Anglo-German podcasts. Please be reminded that we would love to hear your views and news, suggestions and questions. Our Twitter handle is at Tommy's Jerry's, or you can reach us on our personal accounts at HoyerCat and at Oliver Moody. And as we continue to indulge in shamelessly salacious historical gossip, I'm delighted that we have an expert here to help us prod our noses into the third of the great Anglo-German marriages of the 19th century. Uh, I'm thrilled to welcome Claire McHugh to the show. She was born in London but grew up in the US where she graduated from Harvard University with a degree in European history. And pertinently, she is the author of the historical fiction novel, A Most English Princess. Claire, welcome. It's so great to be here, you guys. Claire, in your book, uh, Most, uh, Most English Princess, you tell the story of Vicky, Queen Victoria's oldest daughter. Like her mother, she ended up marrying a German. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about Vicky and how she ended up in Berlin? Well, it was her father's idea. Albert, having moved to Britain, liked various aspects of, of Britain and wanted Germany to become a counterpart, um, a, a, to resemble it. And she, he thought that his very precocious daughter could help bring that about by marrying uh, the Crown Prince of Prussia. What was it about Vicky that made you think, yeah, I want to write about her, and in particular about her time in the, the court in, uh, in Prussia? You know, um, the, t- the, the past is a different country, and, and women uh, live different lives. But I recognize something in Vicky that comes across in her letters to her mother. She's, she's a surprisingly modern person. She, she is very confident. Um, she's very well-educated. She has very liberal views. And she embarked on an adventure with great... She was a very valiant person. She really thought that maybe she could make this happen, that she could be such a good influence on the political development of Germany, that she wouldn't be just some mere princess, a picturesque, or just having babies, that, that her influence could be wide in scope. You know, she was a bit naive. However, I never stopped loving the intention she had for her adopted country. And um, to what extent was the marriage of Vicky and Fritz a rerun of the Victoria and Albert show? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, Vicky, as a young girl, grew up seeing a passionate love between her mother and father. And she was determined, as were her parents, that any match be a love match. But actually, um, it even surpassed that. Um, Vicky uh, first met Fritz, the, the Prince of Prussia, when she was a 10-year-old and, and liked him then as sort of as a friend. But when they re-met when she was 15 and he was 22, he was a, he was a gorgeous man. And she, um, you know, having witnessed a, a, a wife uh, very in love with her husband, um, saw that one could express a lot of passion for someone 
one would uh, be spending the whole of a life with, that an arranged marriage didn't have to be a dull and dutiful one. And um, so uh, because Fritz was such a dish, um, they uh, uh, were engaged in three weeks. And uh, Vicky was very close to her father, wasn't she? And and you could argue that Victoria was was a uh, you know to a fair percentage German herself in in her um, upbringing and so on. Um, so how German was Vicky, um, and did this help her at all in in Berlin? You know, one of the frustrations for Vicky when she arrived in Berlin is that people called her the most English princess, the English princess. When, but she pointed out that three of her four grandparents were German-born. Um, and as well, she spoke fluent German. She was very well educated um, in all of the German uh, uh, historians, philosophers, writers, and musicians. And, you know, she had her father wanted her to be just like him, the best part of um, a 19th century German, somebody with a lot of energy who wanted to change things. Um, and, and so <laughs> the fact that she was a modern uh, kind of uh, woman in England would be, was much more accepted. In Germany, uh, when she was uh, when in Berlin, in Prussia, when she was introduced as the new wife of, uh, of Fritz and that she began speaking about politics openly and what her views were, this was condemned. So the very thing uh, and condemned and made insulted and made fun of and immediately uh, she was a um, uh, figure of suspicion. People felt that Fritz was controlled by her, that, you know, in Prussia. I don't know, there was no other model at that time of a woman who would be an equal partner. And Vicky did attempt to be an equal partner with Fritz the way she had seen her mother and father have an equal partnership. So the answer to your question is, she was a magnificent um, 19th century woman, and that caused her a lot of problems. And um, famously, Vicky wrote a lot of letters to her mother back in Britain. Did she ever have a little whinge about life in the court of the Kaisers? <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. Um, she was often speaking about how difficult her life was um, in Prussia. She wasn't someone who felt sorry for herself in general, um, but I think she was shocked, as was her mother, uh, by the opposition, then the suspicion, the bad feeling that uh, the very fact of her was evoked. Um, you know, we all find ourselves sometimes in positions where we're not totally accepted. Vicky did make it worse by being someone who she didn't read a room well. She was very confident <laughs> having been um, Albert and Vicky uh, and Victoria's, you know, cherished daughter. So she would, you know, launch into um, things uh, and, and voice her opinions without uh, even thinking enough about it, although she knew that there was this kind of opposition. So it was a combination of her personality and her situation that made her life difficult, and then she had some bad luck. So, But yes, she often expressed this in these letters. These letters are a magnificent um, testimony to her life and to her mother's. They are 8,000 in number. And you mentioned that her interest in politics was regarded with a bit of suspicion, to say the least. How did the imperial court take to her as a person, and particularly as a Briton? Did they ever get around to warming to her? 
No, I'm afraid, Oliver, they never, they, they really, we can say, never really liked her. And, you know, her small stature was also cause of, um, she was taller than her mother. She was a full f- five feet tall. However, the Hohenzollerns, as general, were very tall. And the idea of royal people, uh, persons, they should be impressive, right? And so her height was not um, in, on her side. Um, and um, as Bismarck became ascendant, he decided it was convenient for various political reasons of his own, since he always had political reasons for things. He <laughs> liked her, but decided that she was really a demon and, and encouraged people who were newspaper writers and other people, gossips in the court, to see her as someone, this, this English woman, out of control with her ideas. So, you know, again, it, it was the combination of a confident personality, um, perhaps sometimes insensitive, um, in, a, in a, an impossible situation. But Bismarck did have a bit of a grudging respect for her, though, didn't he? He sort of saw her as a, as a worthy adversary in a way, don't you think? Yes, Katja, I'm so glad you brought that up. His <laughs> associates um, noted that he quite liked her. You know, Bismarck liked women. Um, Vicky wasn't really his type because he didn't like bossy women and she was a bit bossy. <laughs> However, she um, impressed him with her intellectual abilities and she, he liked to cross swords with her. But I fear that he did not uh, acknowledge the damage that he was doing, to, in fact, to the whole royal house by inciting the, an, the natural antipathy toward her for his own reasons, uh, which were more to do with making sure that the first Kaiser listened to him always. Um, but yes, uh, Bismarck had a grudging um, affection even for her. And uh, what about Vicky and, and Fritz? So did, how did they communicate with each other? Were they sort of very formal, informal with each other? Did they speak German or English? What, what do we know about that? Um, they, they spoke German together. Fritz's, uh, Fritz's English never got to be really good. Um, uh, in fact, famously, um, he telegraphed uh, Queen Victoria uh, in Osborne when um, uh, the, fir- the second Kaiser was born and said, uh, uh, Vicky has onto her had a, had a great boy. You know, he, he, he was using, he was translating directly from the German. Um, so his English was never great. Uh, he did speak some. So they spoke always in German. Um, the, the quality of their relationship is really characterized, first of all, in the first 15 to 20 years of their relationship by a passionate sexual connection. Um, and on top of that, Vicky's feeling that he, she could help him and protect him. And he did turn to her. He was very passive in many ways and it had a difficult upbringing by parents who didn't really care for him. So he needed Vicky's support and encouragement and he leaned on her. Um, as they got older, things changed a little bit, but uh, the most important scope of their life that was their relationship and um, as we're on to the topic of their uh, relationship it's, it's sometimes difficult to research those things isn't it because they're so yes there are the letters and there's the correspondence um, and, and your research for your novel has been absolutely meticulous but surely there were gaps where you had to sort of just fill in um, work out perhaps you know w- w- what happened in between of those gaps where we haven't got sources how difficult was it to recreate the couple's private life conversations inner thoughts and um, you know their intimate situations yeah you know I um picked Vicky as a subject for my novel because I didn't think people enough people knew about her and she has such a significant life. I also picked her because there were these wonderful collection of letters so you could hear her voice. Uh, I'm uh, trained as a historian and I didn't want to stray far from 
her own um, uh, uh, mental life as it's as it's uh, documented in the letters. But of course, a novel has to go beyond the kind of sentiments that she expressed to her mother. It had to dive into how I believed it what felt to be her. So carefully, but with understanding of the more uh, the style and mores of those days, I did try to um, evoke uh, her intimate life with her husband, the kind of conversations that they had. I did it with the sense that Vicky was a very direct person and um, would express love and um, also anger uh, very um, straightforwardly. Um, and I didn't think you could do a novel about uh, Vicky without talking about how close she and Fritz were. In some ways, they are the first modern royal marriage after uh, Victoria and Albert. And for that reason, I felt more confident trying to express how much they loved each other and how honest they were with each other. In um, January 1859, Vicky, or the, the Kaiserin Friedrich, as the Germans insisted on calling her, <laughs> gave birth to that great boy you, you just referred to, the future Kaiser Wilhelm II. And, you know, given his family background, how much of a big deal was the British ancestry for Wilhelm? I've just been reading his English and his English, so his letters and his English was really surprisingly bad. Yes, it was a cause of great um, upset to Vicky that he couldn't, she could never get Willie, as she called him, uh, to be a better English speaker. Uh, writers, actually, he spoke pretty well. His, his, his written English, but, you know, English is difficult to write. His written English was n- not superior. Um, you know, the tragedy of uh, Willie and Vicky's relationship was that Vicky felt very responsible for, but for the fact that uh, Willie, who was born three, two months after her 18th birthday, was born uh, with a birth defect, a, a lame left arm. But that made her, because this is Vicky and she's very determined, that made her more insistent that Willie should be perfect and in, in all other ways, uh, incredibly well-educated and ride like a dream and uh, uh, be a person of great discernment, all of which was sometimes beyond Willie's abilities. And so what happened was Willie turned upon Vicky and the whole idea of being English. I mean, he did love Queen Victoria, his grandmother, and he did say, you know, I am partly English, and but my Coburg grandfather was the really the good grandparent on that side. And so a lot of the psychodrama that we see play out between the time um, the Vicky, uh, that um, Willie became the Kaiser and the outbreak of the First World War has to do with the way he really resented his mother's constant pushing and, and nagging and, and arguing with him. Yes, they did have a, a very fraught relationship, didn't they? Sort of alternating between gushing, almost creepy uh, displays of affection in their letters that go perhaps way beyond what you would expect from a, a son and mother, you know, when when they wrote to each other and in the, in the terms that they used. Um, and then these heated arguments that they had and, and utterly, you know, did the, the utter rejection in the end, um, I guess, as well. Tragically, though, Fritz and Vicky were eventually robbed of the of the chance to become the, the last Anglo-German power couple of the 19th century, weren't they? Um, what happened? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Fritz's father, uh, the first Kaiser, lived to a great old age. He died when he was ninety, and there were for, there were some health scares for the last ten years of his life. And they believed Vicky and Fritz that they would finally get their chance um, in the early eighteen um, eighties. 
But again and again, the first Kaiser recovered. And um, then uh, in 1886, uh, Fritz started to have a cold that never went away. And finally, the doctors diagnosed that he had a cancer of the throat. The whole... Um, tragedy of, of Vicky and Fritz was that Fritz only lived 99 days after uh, the death of his father in, in March of 1888. Um, and he was not able to really put into practice any of the liberal principles that he and Vicky had stood for. Now, I think it's a real question how liberal he truly was, but he was certainly more liberal than his father, and he was certainly more stable than his son, so it was a chance that Germany lost. So on on that note um, of of that sort of missed opportunity, um, do you think that if the throat cancer hadn't come in and uh, Frederick wouldn't have died prematurely, do you think that as a couple they would have had a chance to change the course of history given where German history was headed? Um, it's, it's arguably one of the great ifs, isn't it, of, of both German and European history? It is. And because of the way um, things did work out, um, it is very, it's a very compelling what if. I do think things would have been um, more stable. It's interesting to think that had Friedrich lived to the age that his father lived, he would have died in 1921. So um, we would have had a whole period in which the spectacular success of Germany as an industrial, industrialized united nation with an enormous um, educational and um, business resources, uh, even if he hadn't been as liberal as his wife would have wanted him to be. I think we have to concede that Vicky was to the left of Friedrich. Um, however, I believe that um, Friedrich would have, as Kaiser, made a lot of um, important stabilizing uh, goals would have been reached. And I think he and Bismarck would have been able to, live, to work together until the death of Bismarck. Um, and then there would have been a better um, transition to, to a new chancellor. So all of this um, is very poignant to think how much better, how much less extreme uh, uh, the, 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 the statecraft would have been. And of course, the anti-Semitism, uh, the, the second Kaiser didn't do enough to um, halt uh, uh, Fritz and Vicky were known uh, to be friends uh, of the Jewish people. They went to synagogue on occasion. That would have been very, very helpful for the development of the German nation had that um, influence been at the top of the society. Claire, you described Vicky a couple of moments ago as a tragic figure. What happened to her then after Friedrich died? You know, it was very hard um, for Vicky to have lost the chance, having waited so long, to be the empress. And then... The second thing that happened was that her son immediately sidelined her. He not only um, didn't listen to her advice, he wanted her to move out of her home in Potsdam. She, he wanted her to um, uh, not allow um, uh, her daughters, uh, the younger sisters of the, of the new Kaiser, to marry the people that they wanted to marry. There were all sorts of fights in the family about who those girls should marry and to, for, with, with rather sad results. Um, so Vicky was very downcast for three or four years, and she thought about moving back to Osborne on the Isle of Wight and just giving up on Germany. But, you know, she was a very resilient person. She said, no, no, I can't do that. And I have a lot of friends and I still have a lot to give the German nation. So after a depression, she then pulled herself together. She bought a 
built a new house for herself outside of Frankfurt. And there she had a sort of salon uh, for several years of um, the kind of artists and writers and politicians she liked. But then she too um, succumbed to cancer at a very early age, uh, breast cancer, which was diagnosed when she was 59. And she died just eight months after her mother, Queen Victoria, in the summer of 1901. Um, at, at age 60. Wow, that, that is a tragic um, and I actually feel a bit sorry for her now despite the fact that she was Bismarck's adversary in so many ways but I know he had a soft spot too somewhere deep in his iron heart for her. Um. <laughs> uh, Katja, I believe that you and many Germans um, are pretty anti uh, uh, well, you lean against Vicky and I, I, my novel is an is a, it's an argument. It's a proposition, like every kind of fiction. It's a um, it's an interpretation of character, and I hope those who read it will see that, you know, there were wonderful things about Vicky, and I think in general she was a good person and a valiant one. It has actually won me over. You you paint so many different facets of of Vicky. There there is something to love there for everybody. I think uh, because she was such a complex. Uh, character. Well, that was fascinating, Claire. Thank you so much. Um, it's been absolutely riveting having you on as a guest. Um, and I feel we've, uh, oh, I feel like I've just devoured the 19th century version of Hello! magazine. Um, if you're hungry for more, uh, Claire's excellent historical novel, A Very English Princess, is available at all good book outlets. Um, and I hear there's another one in the making, Claire? Yes, I am writing another novel about a German princess who spent a lot of time in England and then also in um, Russia, the la- Alexandra, the last empress um, of Russia. So that'll take a couple of years to write, though. The research is complicated. Thank you for having me on the show. Good luck with all. I love Tommy's and Jerry's. <laughs> Dankeschön, Claire McHugh. And cheerio to our listeners. Auf Wiedersehen from Sussex. Man sieht sich. Goodbye from Berlin.